Chapter 19 of The Professor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Giessen. The Professor by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter 19, Part 2. I hate boldness the boldness which is of the brassy brow and insensate nerves but i love the courage of the strong heart the fervour of the generous blood i loved with passion the light of francis evans's clear hazel eye when it did not fear to look straight into mine i loved the tones with which he uttered the words mon maître mon maître i loved the movement with which she confided her hand to my hand I loved her as she stood there, penniless and parentless, for a sensualist charmless, for me a treasure, the best object of sympathy on earth, thinking such thoughts as I thought, feeling such feelings as I felt, my ideal of the shrine in which to seal my stores of love, personification of discretion and forethought, of diligence and perseverance, of self-denial and self-control those guardians, those trusty keepers of the gift I longed to confer on her, the gift of all my affections, model of truth and honour, of independence and conscientiousness, those refiners and sustainers of an honest life, silent possessor of a well of tenderness, of a flame as genial as still, as pure as quenchless, of natural feeling, natural passion those sources of refreshment and comfort to the sanctuary of home. I knew how quietly and how deeply the well bubbled in her heart. I knew how the more dangerous flame burned safely under the eye of reason. I had seen when the fire shot up a moment, high and vivid, when the accelerated heat troubled life's current in its channels. I had seen reason reduce the rebel and humble its blaze to embers. I had confidence in Frances Evans, I had respect for her, and as I drew her arm through mine and led her out of the cemetery, I felt I had another sentiment as strong as confidence, as firm as respect, more fervid than either, that of love. Well, my pupil, said I, as the ominous-sounding gate swung to behind us, well, I have found you again. A month's search has seemed long, and I little thought to have discovered my lost sheep straying amongst graves. Never had I addressed her but as Mademoiselle before, and to speak thus was to take up a tone new to both her and me. Her answer surprised me that this language ruffled none of her feelings, woke no discord in her heart. Mon maître, she said, have you troubled yourself to seek me? I little imagined you would think much of my absence, but I grieved bitterly to be taken away from you. I was sorry for that circumstance when heavier troubles ought to have made me forget it. Your aunt is dead. Yes, a fortnight since, and she died full of regret which I could not chase from her mind. She kept repeating even during the last night of her existence, Francis, you will be so lonely when I am gone, so friendless. She wished, too, that she could have been buried in Switzerland, 
and it was I who persuaded her in her old age to leave the banks of Lake Leman, and to come, only as it seems to die, in this flat region of Flanders. Willingly would I have observed her last wish and taken her remains back to our own country, but that was impossible. I was forced to lay her here. She was ill but a short time, I presume. But three weeks. When she began to sink, I asked Mademoiselle Reuter's leave to stay with her and wait on her. I readily got leave. Do you return to the pensionnat? I demanded hastily. Monsieur, when I had been at home a week, Mademoiselle Reuter called one evening, just after I had got my aunt to bed. She went into her room to speak to her, and was extremely civil and affable, as she always is. Afterwards she came and sat with me a long time, and just as she rose to go away, she said, Mademoiselle, I shall not soon cease to regret your departure from my establishment, though indeed it is true that you have taught your class of pupils so well that they are all quite accomplished in the little works you manage so skilfully, and have not the slightest need of further instruction. My second teacher must in future supply your place with regard to the younger pupils, as well she can, though she is indeed an inferior artiste to you, and doubtless it will be your part now to assume a higher position in your calling. I am sure you will everywhere find schools and families willing to profit by your talents. And then she paid me my last quarter's salary. I asked, as Mademoiselle would no doubt think very bluntly, if she designed to discharge me from the establishment. She smiled at my inelegance of speech, and answered that our connection as employer and employed was certainly dissolved, but that she hoped still to retain the pleasure of my acquaintance. She should always be happy to see me as a friend. And then she said something about the excellent condition of the streets, and the long continuance of fine weather, and went away quite cheerful. I laughed inwardly. All this was so like the directress, so like what I had expected and guessed of her conduct, and then the exposure and proof of her lie unconsciously afforded by Frances. She had frequently applied for Mademoiselle Henri's address, forsooth. Mademoiselle Henri had always evaded giving it etc., etc., and here I found her a visitor at the very house of whose locality she had professed absolute ignorance. Any comments I might have intended to make on my pupil's communication were checked by the plashing of large raindrops on our faces and on the path, and by the muttering of a distant but coming storm. The warning, obvious in stagnant air and leaden sky, had already induced me to take the road leading back to Brussels, and now I hastened my own steps and those of my companion, and as our way lay downhill we got on rapidly. There was an interval after the fall of the first broad drops before heavy rain came on. In the meantime we had passed through the Porte de Louvain, and were again in the city. "'Where do you live?' I asked. I will see you safe home. Rue Notre-Dame-aux-Neiges, answered Francis. It was not far from the Rue de Louvain, and we stood on the doorsteps of the house we sought, ere the clouds, severing with loud peal and shattered cataract of lightning, emptied their livid folds in a torrent, heavy, prone, and broad. Come in, come in, said Francis, as, after putting her into the house, I paused ere I followed. The word decided me. I stepped across the threshold, 
shut the door on the rushing, flashing, whitening storm, and followed her upstairs to her apartments. Neither she nor I were wet. A projection over the door had warded off the straight-descending flood. None but the first large drops had touched our garments. One minute more and we should not have had a dry thread on us. Stepping over a little mat of green wool, I found myself in a small room with a painted floor and a square of green carpet in the middle. The articles of furniture were few, but all bright and exquisitely clean. Order reigned through its narrow limits, such order as it soothed my punctilious soul to behold. And I had hesitated to enter the abode, because I apprehended after all that Mademoiselle Reuter's hint about its extreme poverty might be too well founded and I feared to embarrass the lace-mender by entering her lodgings unawares. Poor the place might be, poor truly it was, but its neatness was better than elegance, and had but a bright little fire shone on that clean hearth, I should have deemed it more attractive than a palace. No fire was there, however, and no fuel laid ready to light. The lace-mender was unable to allow herself that indulgence, especially now when deprived by death of her sole relative she had only her own unaided exertions to rely on frances went into an inner room to take off her bonnet and she came out a model of frugal neatness with her well-fitting black stuff dress so accurately defining her elegant bust and taper waist with her spotless white collar turned back from a fair and shapely neck with her plenteous brown hair arranged in smooth bands on her temples, and in a large Grecian plait behind. Ornaments she had none, neither brooch, ring, nor ribbon. She did well enough without them. Perfection of fit, proportion of form, grace of carriage, agreeably supplied their place. Her eye, as she re-entered the small sitting-room, instantly sought mine, which was just then lingering on the hearth. I knew she read at once the sort of inward ruth and pitying pain which the chill vacancy of that hearth stirred in my soul. Quick to penetrate, quick to determine, and quicker to put in practice, she had in a moment tied a holland apron round her waist. Then she disappeared and reappeared with a basket. It had a cover, she opened it, and produced wood and coal. Deftly and compactly she arranged them in the grate. It is her whole stock, and she will exhaust it out of hospitality, thought I. What are you going to do? I asked. Surely not to light a fire this hot evening. I shall be smothered. Indeed, monsieur, I feel it very chilly since the rain began. Besides, I must boil the water for my tea, for I take tea on Sundays. You will be obliged to try and bear the heat. She had struck a light. The wood was already in a blaze and truly when contrasted with the darkness, the wild tumult of the tempest without, that peaceful glow which began to beam on the now animated hearth seemed very cheering. A low purring sound from some quarter announced that another being, besides myself, was pleased with the change, a black cat, roused by the light from its sleep on a little cushioned footstool, came and rubbed its head against Frances's gown as she knelt. She caressed it, saying it had been a favourite with her pauvre tante Julienne. 
the fire being lit the hearth swept and a small kettle of a very antique pattern such as i thought i remembered to have seen in old farmhouses in england placed over the now ruddy flame frances's hands were washed and her apron removed in an instant then she opened a cupboard took out a tea-tray on which she had soon arranged a china tea equipage whose pattern shape and size denoted a remote antiquity a little old-fashioned silver spoon was deposited in each saucer and a pair of silver tongs equally old-fashioned were laid on the sugar-basin from the cupboard too was produced a tidy silver cream ewer not larger than an eggshell while making these preparations she chanced to look up and reading curiosity in my eyes she smiled and asked is this like england monsieur like the england of a hundred years ago i replied is it truly well everything on this tray is at least a hundred years old these cups these spoons this ewer are all heirlooms my great-grandmother left them to my grandmother she to my mother and my mother brought them with her from england to switzerland and then left them to me and ever since i was a little girl i have thought i should like to carry them back to england whence they came she put some pistolet on the table she made the tea as foreigners do make tea i e at the rate of a teaspoonful to half a dozen cups she placed me in a chair and as i took it she asked with a sort of exultation will it make you think yourself at home for a moment if i had a home in england i believe it would recall it i answered and in truth there was a sort of illusion in seeing the fair-complexioned english-looking girl presiding at the english meal and speaking in the english language you have then no home was her remark none nor ever have had if ever i possess a home it must be of my own making and the task is yet to begin and as i spoke a pang new to me shot across my heart it was a pang of mortification at the humility of my position and the inadequacy of my means while with that pang was born a strong desire to do more earn more be more possess more and in the increased possessions my roused and eager spirit panted to include the home i have never had the wife i inwardly vowed to win frances's tea was little better than hot water sugar and milk and her pistolet with which she could not offer me butter was sweet to my palate as manna the repast over and the treasured plate and porcelain being washed and put by the bright table rubbed still brighter le chat de ma tante julienne also being fed with provisions brought forth on a plate for its special use a few stray cinders and a scattering of ashes too being swept from the hearth frances at last sat down and then as she took a chair opposite to me she betrayed for the first time a little embarrassment and no wonder for indeed i had unconsciously watched her rather too closely followed all her steps and all her movements a little too perseveringly with my eyes for she mesmerized me by the grace and alertness of her action by the deft cleanly even decorative effect resulting from each touch of her slight and fine fingers and when at last she subsided to stillness the intelligence of her face seemed beauty to me and i dwelt on it accordingly 
Her colour, however, rising rather than settling with repose, and her eyes remaining downcast, though I kept waiting for the lids to be raised that I might drink a ray of the light I loved, a light where fire dissolved in softness, where affection tempered penetration, where just now at least pleasure played with thought. This expectation not being gratified, I began at last to suspect that I had probably myself to blame for the disappointment. I must cease gazing, and begin talking, if I wished to break the spell under which she now sat motionless. So, recollecting the composing effect which an authoritative tone and manner had ever been wont to produce on her, I said, "'Get one of your English books, mademoiselle, for the rain yet falls heavily, and will probably detain me half an hour longer.' Released and set at ease, up she rose, got her book, and accepted at once the chair I placed for her at my side. She had selected Paradise Lost from her shelf of classics, thinking, I suppose, the religious character of the book best adapted it to Sunday. I told her to begin at the beginning, and while she read Milton's invocation to that heavenly muse, who on the secret top of Oreb or Sinai had taught the Hebrew shepherd how in the womb of chaos the conception of a world had originated and ripened, I enjoyed undisturbed the treble pleasure of having her near me, hearing the sound of her voice, a sound sweet and satisfying in my ear, and looking by intervals at her face. Of this last privilege I chiefly availed myself when I found fault with an intonation, a pause or an emphasis. As long as I dogmatized, I might also gaze without exciting too warm a flush. Enough, said I, when she had gone through some half-dozen pages, a work of time with her, for she read slowly, and paused often to ask and receive information. Enough, and now the rain is ceasing, and I must soon go. For indeed at that moment, looking towards the window, I saw it all blue. The thunderclouds were broken and scattered, and the setting August sun sent a gleam like the reflection of rubies through the lattice. I got up. I drew on my gloves. You have not yet found another situation to supply the place of that from which you were dismissed by Mademoiselle Reuter. No, monsieur. I have made inquiries everywhere, but they all ask me for references, and to speak truth I do not like to apply to the directress, because I consider she acted neither justly nor honourably towards me. She used underhand means to set my pupils against me, and thereby render me unhappy while I held my place in her establishment, and she eventually deprived me of it by a masked and hypocritical manoeuvre, pretending that she was acting for my good, but really snatching from me my chief means of subsistence, at a crisis when not only my own life, but that of another, depended on my exertions. Of her I will never more ask a favour. How, then, do you propose to get on? How do you live now? I have still my lace-mending trade. With care it will keep me from starvation, and I doubt not by dint of exertion to get better employment yet. It is only a fortnight since I began to try. My courage or hopes are by no means worn out yet. And if you get what you wish, what then? What are your ultimate views? To save enough to cross the channel. I always look to England as my Canaan. 
Well, well, ere long I shall pay you another visit. Good evening now. And I left her rather abruptly. I had much ado to resist a strong inward impulse, urging me to take a warmer, more expressive leave. What so natural as to fold her for a moment in a close embrace, to imprint one kiss on her cheek or forehead? I was not unreasonable, that was all I wanted. Satisfied in that point, I could go away content. And reason denied me even this. She ordered me to turn my eyes from her face and my steps from her apartment, to quit her as dryly and coldly as I would have quitted old Madame Pelet. I obeyed, but I swore rancorously to be avenged one day. I'll earn a right to do as I please in this matter, or I'll die in the contest. I have one object before me now. To get that Genevese girl for my wife, and my wife she shall be. That is, provided she has as much or half as much regard for her master as he has for her. And would she be so docile, so smiling, so happy under my instructions if she had not? Would she sit at my side when I dictate or correct, with such a still, contented, halcyon mien? For I had ever remarked that however sad or harassed her countenance might be when I entered a room, yet after I had been near her, spoken to her a few words, given her some directions, uttered perhaps some reproofs, she would all at once nestle into a nook of happiness, and look up serene and revived. The reproofs suited her best of all. While I scolded, she would chip away with her penknife at a pencil or a pen, fidgeting a little, pouting a little, defending herself by monosyllables. And when I deprived her of the pen or pencil, fearing it would be all cut away, and when I interdicted even the monosyllabic defence for the purpose of working up the subdued excitement a little higher, she would at last raise her eyes and give me a certain glance, sweetened with gaiety, and pointed with defiance, which, to speak truth, thrilled me as nothing had ever done, and made me, in a fashion, though happily she did not know it, her subject, if not her slave. After such little scenes, her spirits would maintain their flow, often for some hours, and, as I remarked before, her health therefrom took a sustenance and vigour which, previously to the event of her aunt's death and her dismissal, had almost recreated her whole frame. It has taken me several minutes to write these last sentences, but I had thought all their purport during the brief interval of descending the stairs from Francis's room. Just as I was opening the outer door, I remembered the twenty francs which I had not restored. I paused. Impossible to carry them away with me. Difficult to force them back on their original owner. I had now seen her in her own humble abode, witnessed the dignity of her poverty, the pride of order, the fastidious care of conservatism, obvious in the arrangement and economy of her little home. I was sure she would not suffer herself to be excused paying her debts. I was certain the favour of indemnity would be accepted from no hand, perhaps least of all from mine. Yet these four five-franc pieces were a burden to my self-respect, and I must get rid of them. An expedient, a clumsy one no doubt, but the best I could devise, suggested itself to me. I darted up the stairs, knocked, re-entered the room as if in haste. 
Mademoiselle, I have forgotten one of my gloves. I must have left it here. She instantly rose to seek it, and as she turned her back, I, being now at the hearth, noiselessly lifted a little vase, one of a set of china ornaments as old-fashioned as the teacups, slipped the money under it, then saying, Oh, here is my glove. I dropped it within the fender. Good evening, mademoiselle. I made my second exit. Brief as my impromptu return had been, it had afforded me time to pick up a heartache. I remarked that Frances had already removed the red embers of her cheerful little fire from the grate. Forced to calculate every item, to save in every detail, she had instantly on my departure retrenched a luxury too expensive to be enjoyed alone. I am glad it is not yet winter, thought I, but in two months more come the winds and rains of November. Would to God that before then I could earn the right and the power to shovel coals into that great ad libitum. Already the pavement was drying. A balmy and fresh breeze stirred the air, purified by lightning. I felt the west behind me, where spread a sky like opal, azure immingled with crimson. The enlarged sun, glorious in Tyrian tints, dipped his brim already. Stepping, as I was, eastward, I faced a vast bank of clouds, but also I had before me the arch of an evening rainbow, a perfect rainbow, high, wide, vivid. I looked long, my eye drank in the scene, and I suppose my brain must have absorbed it, for that night, after lying awake in pleasant fever a long time, watching the silent sheet-lightning which still played among the retreating clouds, and flashed silvery over the stars, I at last fell asleep, and then in a dream where reproduced the setting sun, the bank of clouds, the mighty rainbow. I stood, methought, on a terrace. I leaned over a parapeted wall. There was a space below me, depth I could not fathom, but hearing an endless dash of waves, I believed it to be the sea. Sea spread to the horizon. Sea of changeful green and intense blue. All was soft in the distance, all vapour veiled. A spark of gold glistened on the line between water and air, floated up, approached, enlarged, changed. The object hung midway between heaven and earth, under the arch of the rainbow. The soft but dusk clouds diffused behind. It hovered as on wings. Pearly, fleecy, gleaming air streamed like raiment round it. Light, tinted with carnation, coloured what seemed face and limbs. A large star shone with still lustre on an angel's forehead. An upraised arm and hand, glancing like a ray, pointed to the bow overhead and a voice in my heart whispered, Hope smiles on effort. End of chapter 19, part 2 Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey